The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I'm so happy to be speaking with Dr. Nicole Jackson. She is a forensic pathologist, and she currently practices in Chicago. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So excited to pick your brain. As uh, we all say, the pathologists are the doctor's doctors. So I know you're a wealth of information and uh, looking forward to, to learning from you today. So Dr. Jackson, when did you first decide to pursue a career in medicine? Oh, goodness. So I'd say back in high school, I was fortunate enough to attend a series of early exposure experiences to medicine, the first being the National Student Leadership Conference in Washington, D.C. And for some reason, um, I chose healthcare and medicine without really knowing too much about the field outside of having seen a pediatrician for my entire life. And so I went down to D.C., Um, I believe it was based on maybe SAT scores, plus or minus recommendations from your high school advisor. And uh, we had a lot of experiences. So we had different doctors come and lecture us. Uh, We had different um, reading assignments, different engagements. And that was my first uh, inkling that this might be something I'm interested in. I came back, I'm from New Jersey, came back to New Jersey, and I happened to attend a public school down the street from one of our local medical schools, uh, one of um, the three UMDMJs, which have now been reclassified into New Jersey Medical School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And they had an outreach program that was geared toward all the local public schools, and they reached out to high school teachers and guidance counselors and they asked them to give recommendations of people who were doing well in their studies and they thought had the potential to become a doctor. And so my public school was about 88% minorities, mostly Black and Latino. So that was nice because it helps diversify the field and provide exposures to people who other might not be exposed to the field. Um, and so we would go down the street to campus on the evenings And they had a series of didactics and hand-on exposures with organs. Uh, Surgeons came and talked to us. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating what was going on inside us every moment of every day inside the human body to keep us alive. And then all the different things that could go wrong. So that's where my interest started. Uh, Right. So without those, I I wouldn't be here. So I, I really think it speaks to the need to reach kids early. And I don't think we can do it early enough, especially for minority students. Absolutely. And one of the driving reasons behind this podcast is just to provide that exposure, not hands on, but, you know, as you're listening in your car or or doing chores or what have you, you can uh, listen and learn from these fantastic guests that that come on the show. So, Dr. Jackson, from high school, you went on to Duke University where you majored in psychology. Yes, I was a psychology major. So Duke was unique, and they still are. They There is no pre-med major. There is no pre-law. Uh, they have a strong philosophy that they want their students to be well-rounded. So we have this very uh, complex matrix, um, and you had to check different boxes. So you had to take something that was considered cultural and arts, and you had to take 
something that was science. You had to take all these different things because they didn't want you graduating at the end of four years, only surrounded by people kind of just like you, Mm -hmm. right? So they didn't want all the pre-meds only interacting with pre-meds. They didn't want the athletes only interacting with athletes. They didn't want the people heading to Wall Street only interacting with the econ (laughs) class. So that was great. Uh, It did make it a little harder because our classes weren't weighted um, and you still had to take your pre-med recs. But I chose psychology because I've always been fascinated uh, with people. Uh, I always say it might be because I'm an only child and grew up, you know, a lot of times <laughs> alone. So I was always fascinating um, meeting new people, learning about new people, learning what drives people to do whatever it is they're doing. And so a lot of my coursework was in psychology. Uh, my concentration was personality and social behavior. So why uh, we act the way we do, why we are the way we are, how our environment influences our behavior and our decisions and our entire lifespan analysis from birth to death. And then I also did a lot of subject work in um, cognitive science within pathology, within the judgment and decision-making realm. So why we make the decisions we do. Um, And I just found it fascinating. Yeah. So yes, I was a psychology major, long story short. Yeah, that's, that is fascinating. And coming out of Duke, you chose to go to Tulane for medical school. What led you to move from Jersey now to the North Carolina where Duke is to Louisiana? Sure. I Well, growing up, I, I honestly never thought I would leave the tri-state. I love New Jersey. A lot of my dad's family is in Manhattan. Um, my dad actually died when I was young, so I'm I'm a product of a a wonderful single mother, and I didn't really want to go far from her. However, as we all know, it is very competitive and expensive to get into medical school, so you can't apply everywhere, um, and you can't guarantee admissions everywhere. And so when it came down to it, um, I believe I had uh, one of the local schools, Drexel and Philly, and then Tulane. And what uh, drew me to apply to Tulane is really multifaceted. One, they had, um, and they still do, a very large MD-MPH dual degree program where you Hmm. earn both your medical degree and your master's in public health in four years. Um, And I wanted very, I very deeply wanted a master's in public health. I chose to do my concentration in epidemiology because I knew I wasn't certain what type of medicine I wanted to do. I actually started in general surgery and I went into medicine thinking I would be a surgeon started a residency, did not like it, and wound up switching into pathology. But I knew regardless of what specialty I wound up in, I wanted my career to be focused on studying and making changes on a larger scale. And I did not think what was taught or the focus of medical school would enable me to do that. And so the more I learned about public health, Uh, particularly epidemiology, which is the study of disease on a population-based level. Um, I knew that would help me tailor whatever specialty I went into, being able to summate these individual patient interactions into something larger that hopefully would be of benefit to the larger community. And for me, you know, my whole interest in medicine, outside from those early experiences, my father died very suddenly when I was young. Yeah, sorry and, for your loss. You know, he was a young. Oh, it's it's fine, but thank you. But he, you know, he was a young black man, and so I started researching back in you know when I was younger why, and you start learning 
time and time again, this big mortality gap within, um, you know, the black community as compared to other populations in America, we, we die younger. And why is that? And so that was, a, that was a large driving force, both for going into med school and into public health and Tulane. So that was one of the large draws for Tulane. Another one uh, so I went about five years post-Hurricane Katrina. So the city was very much in this uh, state of rebuilding. You had a lot of people coming down to the city wanting to make it a better place, wanting to restore it to better than it was pre-Katrina. And Tulane had a mission statement um, that involved community service and being active in the community. And they actually had a requirement that each semester or year we had to we had to um, submit a certain number of community service hours. And they were very liberal on how you did it. So some people were very into cooking and they went into the community and they, you know, helped raise gardens and then taught people to cook from their gardens. I went the approach, I ran one of our free student clinics, but there were so many different ways. They just wanted you to get involved and figure out how to. And for me, I thought the type of student that would even consider a med school that had that requirement, you know, was probably a little easier to train with than the stereotypical pre-med student yeah. that was very much focused on themselves. So, and I was very happy with that choice. Yeah, that's this very interesting and fascinating. The uh, especially the MD and PH program. I know uh, some folks will definitely be interested in looking deeper into that. And as you were finishing up medical school. So you were initially leaning towards surgery, or were you thinking about pathology or on the fence about that? How did that uh, process go of, of uh, choosing a residency? Oh, goodness. So pathology was not even on my radar. <laughs> As you know, it is not, despite pathology being really the core of medicine, because we all interact with disease, we all use laboratory testing. About 70% of all clinical decisions are based on something that's coming from the lab, uh, very little can you do in medicine without utilizing the lab, and yet it is not a, not a required uh, rotation. So from the med student perspective, what you think about pathology is what you see in your, your lectures, your first and second year. So it wasn't on my radar, and I went in very focused on being a surgeon. I liked anatomy. I loved anatomy, and I loved being inside the human body, very good with my hands and fixing things. And so I actually, you know, I did everything. I did the research in general surgery. I was president of the Surgery Interest Club. All that, Matt, uh, went to um, back to North Carolina at Wake Forest uh, for my first year of general surgery and did not like life at all. It was so terrible. Um, (laughs) It was so bad. I think part of it, Tulane had a very small um, surgical center. It was a very different environment than going to a very large cancer center and a very big surgical hospital that just had, you know, goodness, eight times the amount of surgical suites that, you know, wow. I trained at. So it was a big leap. But also just the expectation is that your life is this. Your life is living in the hospital and you need to be satisfied with that. And that was not me. That's never been me. I've always been a person that values balance in life and whatever you do. And I remember one of the turning points, um, and this is something I encourage anyone applying to med school to ask, is how does a program adapt for unexpected 
um, emergencies in life. So unfortunately, I had a series of three deaths in my family back to back, like November, December and January. And it was one grandmother, a cousin and then um, my closest grandmother. And they only let me go to the first funeral. Wow. And just after that, I was like, you know, it really hits the nail on the head. Our time is limited, both on the earth and, you know, with those around us. And do you really want to go through your life and not have that time for your family or really have to break your neck to make that time? And so fortunately, I was in a program, a huge program, with a program director that was accepting a job somewhere else. He saw I was unhappy uh, and he was very nice. And saying, you know, if you want out of this program, I can get you into another program in surgery somewhere else. Or if you even want to leave, you know, the field of surgery, I can help you and be in a, huh. of assistance, which is very, very nice. Um, they also had a huge program with people that could easily fill my spot. So that <laughs> helped. And so what I wound up doing, I did actually apply to some open PGY2 spots in surgery elsewhere. Um, and on the interviews there, I just realized, no, I, I don't want to even be doing this anymore because so much of surgery or what drew me to surgery was the human body and being inside the body. But so much of surgery is not that, you know, you're dealing with surgeons and surgeons attitudes and tempers. You're dealing with fluid and electrolytes and scut work. And I really didn't want to spend any more time doing that. Um, But fortunately, one of the surgeons who I really liked in my residency, he used to, so he was part of the colorectal service and he used to, you know, take parts of the bowel out and then open them in the OR, which you are not supposed to do from a pathology uh, perspective. (laughs) But when he did it, I just remember being so fascinated with, you know, these cancerous growths growths, or these um, carpeting of the bowel with different polyps and just realizing I would much rather be with that specimen and analyzing that and studying that than be standing in the OR and dealing with all that came with that. So um, there was, oh, uh, at this point, it was so late in the application cycle, you know, you kind of have to just pick what's left over. Um, And so I was looking at actually interventional radiology. um, And then there was one opening in pathology back in New Orleans at LSU And so I applied to that knowing, you know, I loved my time in New Orleans. It is a lovely city full of character and life and lovely people. I knew I'd be happy there and I was so unhappy where I was. And so I called the program or the program director called me and we just had a great conversation about what pathology is and how she really saw me fitting in. And part of the reason I switched to pathology was specifically to do forensics. Um, You know, my father's death really stuck with me, obviously, through my life, and I knew I wouldn't get bored um, helping families figure out, you know, why their loved one died and help Mm. them bring closure, because a lot of people think forensic pathology or medical examiners is, you know, all these homicides, gunshot wounds, which is part of what we do, but a lot of what we do are people that die at home, people that die of natural deaths outside of the care of a physician, and so we fill those gaps in for families. It also has an excellent tie-in with public health, which I love and I love studying. Uh, I'm working with epidemiologists on different projects. Um, so I felt it met a lot of my needs. I think we all know pathology is one of the better work-life balance specialties <laughs> in medicine. So that, that was nice uh, to not have to live in a hospital all day. Um, and so for all those reasons and multiple 
other ones I switched and it's been more fulfilling than I even thought it would, um, especially in the wake as we all saw this past year, you know, George Floyd's death as well as numerous other people of color. And then if we all look at the Chauvin trial, you know, a lot of it boiled down to what the pathologists saw during yeah. the autopsy and what they determined the cause of death. But there's this huge justice role that comes in where we are speaking for the dead and what truly happened. And it goes both ways because I've definitely had cases where um, it looks like someone did something wrong and it turns out, no, it was a natural death just in weird circumstances. And so your report and your findings, you know, prevent, uh, prevent someone to going from jail that shouldn't. And conversely, it can, you know, help put someone behind bars that should not be out on the street. So it's been a really great career so far. Still, still early, but pretty good. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story of how you came to discover this field. And I wonder, so as you start your residency in pathology, what are some of the different rotations that you go on? What are some of the things you learned? I guess, what would a medical student be looking forward to in pathology residency? So it's great. Um, so you have so many different rotations. So a lot of people look at their med school lectures and you just think, goodness, all you're doing is looking at these slides all day. And that's part <laughs> of what you do, but it's actually a relatively small part. So there are two large divisions of pathology. There's anatomic pathology and clinical so your anatomic pathology is, you know, your tissue and fluid base. So you have forensic pathology and autopsy pathology is under that, but also surgical pathology. So anytime someone goes to the hospital or a clinic and gets anything from a biopsy to, say, a mastectomy for breast cancer to even a, a toe, foot, leg amputation for diabetes, anything, any part of the tissue that comes out of the body goes to the lab and that's where pathology is based. And so you have people that then take the specimen, whether that's the biopsy, the little pinch of tissue, uh, whether that's, you know, the breast in a mastectomy, and then you examine it and you get to use knives and scalpels and you cut through very strategically to see how big is the tumor, how far does it invade. And then from there, we, you know, we make slides and look under the microscope to see on a cellular level how far and how bad it is or and what is it, you know, and order stains and different things like that. So that's one. Cytology, so that's fluids. So that's everything from pap smears to uh, say a woman comes in with an unexpected pleural effusion, history of breast cancer, you're always concerned about disease recurrence. So they aspirate the the fluids and it's a pathology and they can say whether they see cells that are malignant or concerning for malignancy. Uh, we also have hematopathology. So that's your uh, blood study. So that's everything from sickle cell patients that are getting serial electrophoresis to, to uh, study their disease and their progress and how they're doing to your lymphomas and leukemias. Um, there's a whole division of just pediatric pathology um, there is placenta and perinatal pathology. So those are all under your anatomic. And then you have this whole other side that's called clinical. So that's more your chemistry. So when people go to get blood work done, it goes to the lab. That's chemistry. They're validating those machines and making sure the results that are delivered to the care team are accurate. Uh, you also have microbiology. If we're suspecting an infection of some sort, it goes to the microbiology lab, and someone's in charge of those machines. 
Um, it's a lot of administrative roles. We also have blood bank and transfusion medicine. So when people need a blood transfusion, it's very complex. So for most people, it's very simple. Uh, but there are different antigens that can be on the cell that most people don't even know about that can produce a combative compatibility error. And so then they have to track down the right uh, blood product. And sometimes that requires an international collaborative effort to get that patient the right blood um, or platelets. Um, you have molecular. So they're the people that figure out what is the genetic uh, underpinning or uh, profile of a cancer so that you can use the right targeted therapy. Um, there's also bone marrow and transplant, which usually falls under blood banking and transfusion, but also somewhat molecular. And so figuring out who's a match when people need a match for organ or bone marrow donations. So it's a very large and broad field. There's also <laughs> informatics. So people that are very good at like tech and IT and want to develop systems, there is a huge market for those people in pathology, I'd say in all of medicine, but specifically pathology, because there are so many laboratory systems we use, and they have to communicate to each other, and then they have to communicate to the clinician um, and validate point-of-care testing. So it's a really huge and diverse field uh, with a lot of interests um, that are overlapping, but if you want to just do AP or anatomic, you can. If you want to just do clinical, you can. Most people do both, but that's those are the big rotations. Oh, and I forgot neuropathology, which usually falls alongside autopsy and or surgical pathology. So people that love studying the brain, neurodegenerative diseases and brain tumors, uh, that would be the field for them. I've been taking copious notes. My head right now <laughs> is like the, the emoji with the fireball coming out at the top. Uh, honestly had no idea. I think, well, most people probably have no idea what all you guys do. Yeah. No, I mean, I didn't even know when I switched in and I was very <laughs> worried because I switched in, you know, I had never seen an autopsy. I'd never done an autopsy. I hadn't even watched like basic crime shows on TV. And so I thought I'd be at a disadvantage because so many other specialties, you know, people prepare for all of med school to get in and get ready. But the nice thing about pathology, it's such a jump from what you learn in med school, everyone more or less comes in on equal footing, which is really nice. And the people that work in pathology tend to be very nice um, teachers and welcoming, and they expect you to know nothing. They just expect you to study and work, and and they help you really progress. It's been a really positive experience. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And so it's a four-year residency? Uh, three or four years, depending. So if you do anatomic only or clinical only, it's three. If you do the combined and sit for both boards, it's four years. And most people do anatomic and clinical and are board certified in both. And then you usually follow up with at least one fellowship. Because <laughs> all the rest of that's not enough things to know. <laughs> no, well, that's the thing, right? You're doing all these things and then you usually need at least one year fully dedicated to one thing. And most of our fellowships are only one year. Okay. And so Dr. Jackson, you did fellowship in forensic pathology. So can you tell us about that? Sure. So I did my a fellowship from 2019 to 2020 out at uh, the Office of the Medical Investigator in New Mexico. Um, it's a very good program. It's considered one of the best in the nation, uh, very front edge with technology. They have a whole center for forensic imaging um, and utilize CT scans before every autopsy on nearly every decedent. 
Wow. Uh, a full body CT scan. So I went out there. Um, and so the requirement for forensics, you have to do at least 200 autopsies, full autopsies, and you have an exposure to you know, a wide variety of cases. So you have homicides, drowning, so accidentals, which, you know, that's everything from drowning to falls to motor vehicle accidents, uh, but also to accidental drug overdoses or uh, acute ethanol intoxications. Uh, you have your vulnerable population. So you have your non-accidental pediatric traumas and pediatric homicides, but also um, elderly abuse or neglect. Um, you have, goodness, it's such a range. Uh, and it's really good. And as part of your fellowship, you're also required to do um, rotations with these ancillary services uh, we interact with regularly. So that includes forensic odontology. So the dentist, especially, you know, as the body decays, you lose all your soft tissue and eventually you're going to be a skeleton. And so forensics, pathology at least, we deal with the soft tissue, you know, the skin, the organs. But once that's gone, how do we identify a body? We incorporate odontology so they can compare if there was any um, teeth studies, so x-rays or CTs done prior to death, they can compare and help us identify this person. And then also forensic anthropology, and they know every bone in the body. Um, they can help. Uh, it's, it's impressive. Bones are not my strong point in terms of, you know, everything from remembering what the name is to remembering the difference in typical differences in a male versus, or a male versus female skeleton or pelvis. Um, versus the different characteris uh, characteristics associated with um, your um, ethnicity or race. Um, so it's just fascinating what they do. We also do rotations at the crime lab. So part of our job, especially if you're dealing with something that's potentially going to court, is collecting things that are evidentiary values that, that can be used in court. So whether that's retrieving a bullet uh, so that it goes to the crime lab and they can test fire and try to match it with the gun or whether it's drugs recovered, we turned in, consider your hit and run. Somebody might be walking across the street, hit by a car, either unintentionally or intentionally the car takes off. Well, we'll look for, you know, chips of paint or imprints on the skin that then uh, the crime lab can use to kind of match up with a potential suspect. So you go to the crime lab and it's a, it's absolutely fascinating what they do. Um, it makes you wonder how people can think they can ever get away with you know some basic <laughs> crimes they do. Um, it's a really it's a really fascinating field, um, and that's most of what fellowship is. A lot of places encourage you to do research, and it's a very small community. They're only goodness pre pandemic it was estimated that there were, were about four hundred forensic pathologists in the U.S. doing the job of maybe 1,200. Wow. So it's a very small community, and most people know each other. If not now, within the next five years, you kind of get to know everyone. Uh, pretty welcoming, um, but they really encourage us to go to conferences as fellows so we can network and meet people for potential, you know, employment or collaborative projects. Yeah, it's like the real-life uh, CSI. Yes. Although I haven't really seen CSI, but I'll say yes. <laughs> so, Dr. Jackson, as you were finishing up your fellowship, you had to look into the job market. This was around the time of COVID-19. Stuff was 
really weird. What did you look for in a job and, and how did you end up picking the job you're at now? Sure. So I actually started looking back in. So we start fellowship, like most training programs, July 1st, and we're encouraged to start looking on the job boards. And so there are two national organizations and they have um, job listings. And you kind of look and you see what's available. Is it a region you're comfortable living in? Is it a salary you're comfortable with? What benefits do they have? So I started looking at the end of summer 2019 and I debated staying in New Mexico, which I absolutely love that program. I have nothing negative to say about it, except for it was really far from home, mm. um, home being New Jersey. And, you know, something happened. There isn't so much, but something happened with the planes, um, I, I, some planes, um, Boeing, whatever. They were having problems. And what the repercussions of that, um, there were no longer direct flights from home uh-huh. there, which made it very hard. Like every flight home was at least two or three flights. And I was like, I can't keep doing this. Otherwise, I probably would have stayed if I could have um, gotten home more efficiently, you know, should anything happen. I'm very blessed. My mother is healthy and I don't see anything happening, but you never know. And so I kept looking and I just had zero desire to go back to the South. I'd done, you know, undergrad there, medical school there, residency. I'd done it. I, you know, it's not the region for me, especially as a Northerner. And unfortunately, (laughs) a lot of the job opportunities in forensics a lot are in the South. So at least at the time, I, I didn't want to do that. So that, that wasn't an option. And then it's a timing thing. You know, if somebody's retiring and they're leaving now, they need someone to replace that spot now. So that eliminated a lot of spots because I wasn't going to be ready until July of 2020. So I actually wound up um, picking between Baltimore's office, which is also has a great reputation, and then this office in Chicago. And I wound up signing this contract, I believe, December 29th or 30th of 2019, uh, well before the <laughs> we knew the pandemic was coming. Uh, but I like this office. It's a big city office, a very large office. So you'll see a lot. You have a lot of coworkers and colleagues to learn from um, and see how they trained and how they approach different cases. Chicago is a gorgeous city, even in the pandemic, um, you know, for half the year. Half the year, it's frozen, right. but half the year, it's gorgeous. There's a lake. There's tons of arts, delicious food. It's close to home. Direct flights are easy to most cities, and if need be, I could always get in a car and drive home. So, and they pay they pay well and have good benefits. Um, so that's why I wound up choosing Chicago. Oh, and actually, I, a point I like to make: uh, some people look at the salaries for forensics and don't think they're the best, and that turns them off. But the one big perk forensics has that most specialties do not: we tend to have very good pensions. Mm. And so within 10 years working somewhere, you're guaranteed a certain percent of your salary for the rest of your life, which kind of helps offset being paid slightly less compared to some other specialties. That's interesting. That's that's really good to know. (laughs) And I've actually heard some uh, like commercials online, but there's like private groups of pathologists as well. Like how does private practice work for pathology? Uh, For pathology in general, there are private practices. So I don't know the best because I'm not in it. We did. And most places you train at, they do have you do rotations through. 
uh, a private practice office. And so the one we I, I rotated in back in residency, they were associated with a hospital on a hospital we regularly rotated at. They just had a space, which I assume they rented out. Um, but, you know, it's a private um, business, so they charge the hospital for their services. Um, they also have different contracts with smaller hospitals in the area that send their specimens, especially in rural areas. Um, they'll send the specimen via courier. But I don't know the specifics, because um, but it's very much more business uh, oriented. They're much more efficient than an academic practice. So you'll order less stains and you, you know, just like it's less teaching typically because they're more volume and getting cases turned around. Yeah, that is uh, incredibly interesting, this whole field. Um, how do we bring more exposure to this field? How do medical students um, find out about this earlier rather than later? That's a great question. And unfortunately, I've seen a tide in pathology, and this is something people are starting to seriously address because we do not um, have enough people going in. And every year, it seems a few less people choose pathology. And part of the reason is back in the day, before our time even, pathology used to be a required rotation. So people had exposure um, and now it's just limited to what you see your first two years. So how do we change that? How do we address that? Uh, so one thing, uh, pathology has gained a presence on social media. So there's a large pathology community on Twitter. Uh, the hashtag PathTwitter is very popular. Okay. And it's a great way. Yeah, it's been really good. And a lot of attendings take time and they post cases. Um, there are free open student interest groups uh, for people that are interested in pathology. So no matter where you are, you can reach out and find out more about the fields. There have been more open houses. I've been involved in some. So some are geared toward first and second year medical students. Some are geared to third and fourth year med students that are getting ready to apply. But the, uh, the idea is, especially for the first and second year med students, to just expose them to all that we do, answer all their questions, whether that's how competitive is it to apply to residency? How many fellowships do you have to do? Do you need to do a fellowship? What's the compensation like? What's the job market like? So they can get all those questions out in a, in a very free and open space. Those are probably the biggest ones I can think of. Now there's a free online course that was re recently started called Path Elective, and it allows students to take virtually, and this was all created during the pandemic and opened, uh, when people needed a virtual space to learn. Um, and so they can do these online rotations, if you will, through different areas of pathology to, to see, is this something that I would be interested in doing as a career? Um, and hopefully there's a lot of discussions and we're hoping, I think, as a field to do, uh, especially once the pandemic settles down, some more long-lasting in-person opportunities. That's fantastic. Those are all fantastic resources. And, and hopefully we'll start to see a resurgence in those numbers, especially when it comes to diversity, because as you've made uh, it so clear, there's a, a link between pathology and the justice system. And there's a, a lot of room for, for people to, to really improve the way things are. Agreed. A hundred percent. We have to, we, we can't go an episode without talking about COVID-19. Um, a lot of folks you know, over the last year, two years, there's been um, misinformation. But one of the leading things that's, that's put out is that 
COVID deaths are being overestimated, that everybody that dies, if they're COVID positive, the death is attributed to COVID. So as a pathologist, can you shed any light on kind of that concept? Sure. So I'll say by and large, it's false. Um, if anything, I would guess there's been a, an underestimation. Um, I think what, what makes it hard is that there, there is a lot of variability in how things are done throughout the country, throughout the world. So I can speak to my experience in uh, Cook County, or I spent the last year or plus. And so as part of this public health crisis and response, Cook County has decided that every potential death um, possibly related to COVID, um, their death certificates are being signed by us, the forensic pathologists. Hmm. So we are physically separate from all these hospitals. We are financially separate from all these hospitals. We have zero incentive to lie. Um, and so what normally what would happen if someone dies in the hospital, the clinical care team, the doctor on that team would sign their death certificate. Instead, what is happening, if someone dies in a hospital, if they die in a nursing home, if they die just at home, if they die at home, their body comes to us. If they die in one of those two other places, all their medical records come to us and we split up the responsibility between uh, different people in the office throughout the month and we, we review every single one of those cases wow. and we, we determine how they die. And so it's been very accurate here. Um, I can say talking to my colleagues in other regions, especially in the South and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, there is no way people were overestimating because certain uh, medical examiner's offices didn't even have um, swabs, you know, back when the pandemic was starting and people were dying and people were dying in large numbers, you know, certain Southern states, you know, with the politics, they, they were not providing them with COVID swabs to even test people. Hmm. And so without testing people, you can't, you can't, they weren't listing it because they have no proof that that was there. Um, but yes, that's something I have unfortunately heard perpetuated. And I think part of the problem, it's like people forget where people to. And we've lost people and been yeah. affected by this pandemic. And we want things to be accurate and right as well. And also that we're not, we're not making money off of this. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, if and there should be, and I do think there should be some reimbursement to hospitals for all this increased work. But I think both of us know, and most medical uh, students, residents, doctors know that, you know, if anyone's getting money in the hospital, it's not the trainees <laughs> or the attendings, right. you know, <laughs> Somebody it's else. probably going to the C-suite plus or minus supplies. It's not coming to our pockets. So um, I don't even know how to dispel it. I've, you know, I've had arguments with people after I, because in New Mexico, we were actually doing autopsies on people that died of COVID, full autopsies, because they have a very high uh, biosafety level lab. It's a biosafety lab three, because in that area, they have the plague is endemic there, coccidioides, some other very highly infectious um, diseases that are spread through the air. So they were very well prepared when COVID hit. So we were doing full autopsies. And I'll never forget, like, coming out of an autopsy, having seen the physical damage done by this virus to the lungs, um, and then, you know, getting on social media and getting in arguments with people who are just denying its very existence, and it's just uh, it's hitting your head on the wall. But 
Um, if anything, to your original question, I think there's been an underestimation, and a lot of that has to do with politics and lack of supplies and resources. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, sharing, because obviously your perspective and experience is, is invaluable. No problem. Well, Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for coming on the Black Doctors podcast. I know I've learned a ton about this incredible field. I know this will be helpful for medical students and even residents that are out there listening, and even for clinicians that, you know, if we ever needed another reason to respect and cherish the relationship we have with our pathologist, here are quite a few reasons. Um, I know you're on Twitter, Nicole Jackson, MD, that's N-I-C-O-L-E Jackson, MD. And um, you also mentioned you wanted to highlight the Society of Black Pathologists. Can you tell us about that organization? Sure. So um, this past or 2020, a few of us came together and we decided, you know, it was time that we created a society that encourages diversity within the field of pathology um, that will encourage fostering of recruiting a more diverse training population, um, as well as um, ultimately we would like to work with other minority affinity groups within medicine and collaborative projects centered on disparities. Um, and really highlight the need for disparities and what we have already can contribute to the field and what, what more we can do for the field if we actually put resources in that. So we have formed the Society of Black Pathologists. Our big uh, inaugural kickoff event will be, knock on wood, if it's still happening in person, but it's right now scheduled to be a virtual slash in-person meeting at the 2021 uh, ASCP's uh, big national meeting in Boston. So that will be our kickoff event. It will be membership is always free now and forever for anybody in training. Uh, so if you are in training and are interested in joining, you can join for free. If that's, you know, if you're a med student, if you're a resident, if you're a fellow, um, some common questions. You do not have to be black to be a member. Our membership is open to anyone who aligns with our purpose and our mission statement. Um, you don't only have to be in America. You can be anywhere in the world to join. And you don't have to be a pathologist. You can also be in path or laboratory medicine, excuse me, which includes our uh, technicians. Awesome. That's fantastic. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for the resources you shared, whether it's uh, PATH Twitter or the uh, PATH Elective website you mentioned. We'll include all this information in the show notes. Please go follow Dr. Jackson on Twitter. Again, it's Nicole Jackson, MD. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I loved it. I had a great time. I hope uh, at least a few people out there at least reach out and with any questions, if not ultimately join us. Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another.